0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Tom Barrett is a state senator from Mid Michigan who has made a name for himself opposing many of Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer's actions. Now, he'd like to represent Michigan's new 7th Congressional District in Washington. He faces Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin in one of November's hottest elections, and he'll join us today to talk about his ideas and why he believes he's the better choice. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first, the news from NPR.
2: Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at
3: msp.edu.
1: Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. On 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So, after the 2020 census and the 2021 redistricting redraw, we saw a real shakeup in our congressional politics in this state. The new map looks really different than the map that we have been working with for the last decade, and the redraw forced several incumbents to decide to run in places where they hadn't been the representative before. The new maps also produced certain races that are going to be, I think, a lot closer than the races that we saw over the last 10 years with different districts. The seventh congressional district is one of the new districts that is projected to be pretty close. It is maybe even going to be the closest congressional race. The district, which includes Lansing and Ingham, Livingston and Chiawassee counties, has Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin facing off against State Senator Tom Barrett, who is a Republican out of Charlotte, Michigan. It's a very split district with voters only slightly favoring President Biden in 2020. And State Senator Barrett has been playing that up, noting that Congresswoman Slotkin votes mostly uh, with the with the president. Uh, her record uh, really reflects a strong allegiance to the Biden administration. But while Slotkin and Barrett are really different on politics, they have some similarities as well. They both have experience dealing directly with the country's national security apparatus and both want to expand the amount of money we spend on the nation's military budget. Before we vote in November, we hope here on Detroit Today to talk to a number of the people who are vying for seats in Congress here in Southeast Michigan and all around the state. Next week, we are going to talk with Congresswoman Slotkin on Tuesday uh, on the program to talk about her positions, her record in Congress, and why she's running in this new 7th Congressional District. But before we get to her, we have invited State Senator Tom Barrett onto the show to discuss why he's running in this district and what kind of changes he would hope to make if he is elected to Congress. State Senator Barrett, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. So, I want to start here. Tell me why you're running in the 7th Congressional District and what you think you will offer to uh, citizens who live in that mm-hmm. district if you're elected.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for uh, for that and for the introduction. And, and you're right. This is going to be a very, very competitive congressional district that, you know, as you pointed out, um, you know, is, is brought about by this uh, every 10 year redistricting process that takes place, takes place across the country and certainly here in Michigan. Uh, it is a very, very uh, highly competitive district, one that uh, went for President Trump in 2016, narrowly for President Biden in 2020. And I'm running, this is my my hometown and my home district. Uh, I moved to Eaton County where I live and where I'm raising a family four days after I came home from a deployment in Iraq when my, (coughs) excuse me, my wife and I were married. Uh, And we've been now raising a family in this district. And I'm running for Congress because I feel the country is on the wrong track. I think that the cost of living for families in my district and across the country and across the state is simply reaching an unaffordable high rate that that families can't keep up with. Uh, We've seen gas hit, you know, it was $4.50 a gallon now as I was uh, in in my district on my way to work today. So uh, everything from groceries, like I'm, as I said, I'm I'm raising four kids and, uh, you know, our grocery bill is not going down. It's (laughs) definitely going up, not only as our kids grow, but as the rate of inflation grows. Uh, And family budgets aren't keeping pace with this crushing rate of inflation we have a cold winter coming, and fuel and, and heating costs for home heating are going to be higher again. Uh, and we have issues of crime and security in our communities. Lansing had a record-breaking number of murders last year. That's the central geographic city of this congressional district where I'm running. And we have a border that's unsecure and fentanyl pouring into every city in America right now. And there's just been a lax enforcement on the border. And then we have national security issues. You pointed out my background. I'm 22 years in the Army, just retired earlier this year. I deployed around the world to Iraq, Kuwait, Guantanamo Bay, and South Korea. And I was heartbroken and devastated to see what happened during our withdrawal of Afghanistan in the final days of a 20-year-long conflict where we had sacrificed so many lives to see our president just throw in the towel and forfeit the game allowing the Taliban to be placed in charge of security for our troops in Afghanistan in those final days, directly leading to those Marines who were killed. The 13 best of America are are Marines who were killed in those final days and dozens more who were injured. I can't pretend that's not happening. This district now encompasses uh, the area that, that I've represented in the Michigan State Senate, the area where my wife and I are raising a family and where we want to stand up for the interests of families and working people and those that feel the country's on the wrong track like we do.
1: Hmm. So uh, I want to start with this uh, question of inflation, which, of course, everybody is is dealing with. And mm-hmm. everyone seems pretty dismayed by how expensive things have gotten. You put a lot of the blame for that on uh, the spending plans that President mm-hmm. Biden and the Congress have uh, indulged over the last two uh, two years, but these spending plans have been really popular, including the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips Act, uh, which both take time to be put into action and are kind of long term uh, plans to to grow the economy and to grow opportunity. So, tell me why you think those were the wrong things to do, and I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd also like to hear what, what you would do differently that you think would, would curb inflation.
4: Sure. And I, I think it's important to point out how we got into this situation in the first place, which was by the just crushing amount of spending that came out of Washington, D.C. When you print and spend trillions of dollars, not billions, but trillions, plural of dollars, it simply devalues the currency that's already out circulating in the economy in the short and working term, yes. people well in the short and long term i mean it it you're not going to make up that value i mean if you have a dollar today and they print a trillion more your dollar is worth a lot less than it was the day before and that's irrefutably true of what's happened and the biden administration has doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on spending more and more they're trying to spend their way out of an inflationary crisis and you can't simply print more money to continue to do that. It's only gonna make the problem worse. Even their inflation reduction act that they, you know, claimed was gonna solve all these problems, economists point out that it is not going to have any effect on inflation. In fact, Alyssa Slotkin, my opponent, admitted that it's not gonna have any effect on inflation. So they call it the Inflation Reduction Act. And the those that even voted for it said, yeah, it's not gonna reduce inflation. So to me, we have to simply stop we gotta start by stopping the bleeding of what's causing this problem in the very first place, which is the out-of-control spending coming out of Washington, D.C. They spent money on just reckless things, luxury golf courses, bailouts for different things, stimulus checks for people in federal prison, things that just did not make sense that pumped more money into the economy. On top of that, in the Inflation Reduction Act, they added 87,000 new IRS agents that are going to go after Working people and small business owners in our country to meet out a pound of flesh. Well, the, 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 IRS, to, the IRS,
1: the uh, IRS money is actually going to go to people who pro- most of it's going to go to to help process returns faster than we are. I mean, they, they haven't grown that in a long time. I want to, I, I want to get but you. They a are t- going to add new, new they'll enforcement. will add some new enforcement agents as well. But you're a law and order guy, many right? Many people who do. don't pay their taxes but should be uh, should be held accountable.
4: But Do we need more IRS agents than we can fit into Spartan Stadium on a sold-out Saturday afternoon? (laughs) I mean, they say that they want to chase the billionaires with these IRS agents. There are 700 billionaires in the United States. You could assign one agent for every one of them. Well, I mean, there are a lot of other
1: people who are not paying their fair share of taxes. Well, I I know you have a hard out in in a few minutes, but I I, I want to give you a chance to differentiate, I guess, between – What you see as reckless spending is what you're describing Mm -hmm. these new bills as, and the Trump tax cuts, which Mm -hmm. every economist says has taken trillions of dollars out of the treasury and has not grown the economy uh, long term the way that we we expect it to. Why do you? Why did? I'm assuming you supported those tax cuts. Why do you think that's different? and better than spending federal money in a way that invests in opportunity and growth in the long term. And yeah, it, it absolutely is having the short term effect you uh, you describe. But 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 talk to me about how you see that as different.
4: Sure. And in tax policy and simply rewarding and favoring winners and losers as my opponent has supported by taking our tax dollars out of our pocket of, of working people that you know, pay that. It's not optional. You know, these paying taxes, as you pointed out, is not optional. This is a, a forced mandate on people that takes money out of their pockets, and they want to simply reward winners and losers. My opponent has supported these corporate welfare schemes that take fam- that take money out of working families' pockets and simply give them away to some of the most privileged global corporations in the world. I have stood steadfast against that in the state legislature. When you talk about having a competitive tax code that allows individuals to make investments of their own and make decisions about where they're going to place their resources and where they're going to compete and win and take risks, some of those risks will pay off, and it will be to their benefit, and it'll be to the benefit of our, our country as we raise the standard of living for people, as we innovate, and find new opportunities, not when you take money out of their pocket and simply give it away to other people, and frankly, when you give it away to some of the most profitable global corporations like they've done in the state legislature, and now what they're seeking to do in the federal government. You're talking about you know, the incentives. Welfare, that, yeah. Well, their their corporate welfare direct. Uh, tax I, yeah, right. I agree with that. But I guess I was money. asking
1: you about tax cuts. I mean, we had right. we had an tax, incredible amount of tax cuts during the Trump administration. Tax, yeah, go ahead.
4: And our tax code was uncompetitive internationally, so we had countries leaving, or companies rather, corporations leaving the country. To find a better tax structure somewhere else if we can bring those companies onshore back to the united states capture that tax revenue provide growth and opportunity here that's what we need to be looking at doing and i'm not suggesting that every single tax and you know plan is is better or worse than somebody else's what i am saying is we need to draw a line in the sand and say we're not going to do a wealth transfer from working Mm -hmm. families to global corporations like my opponent has just beat me over the head with (laughs) And I will tell you, I'm one. Of, I'm a Republican. I believe in free market principles, but I'm not someone who's going to take money from one person, from a working person, and hand it over to a corporate CEO. Mary Barra at General Motors makes 461 times what the starting line worker at General Motors makes, and we gave them $700 million in state tax money that came from working families. It equals over $160,000 per job that they're going to create and the workers in those jobs are only going to make forty six thousand dollars. Yeah, I, you'll, so you'll get no value You'll get no argument for, for me price. about about that
1: kind of policy. And again, and again, me for it. That's and again the I know attack
3: they've had against me. Yeah, and I, I know
1: you've got you've got a heart out, and I want to respect that. But but I, I do want to ask you about. Uh, Recent accusations by the group and Citizens United uh, that says you spent $40,000 of your state campaign funds on your federal campaign, and that's a violation, they say. Uh, I want to give you a chance to respond to that accusation.
4: Sure. No, I appreciate the question. It's a frivolous accusation uh, launched by a group that's endorsed and contributed to my opponent. Um, Like a lot of candidates you even pointed out in your introduction, there was a lot of uh, change-up in the redistricting process this Mm -hmm. year in michigan i was looking at you know what that effect was going to have in the district that i live in and represent and what type of uh outcome that was going to have i I had a uh uh, advisor that i hired to look at that who had who had been through the redistricting of a similar nature in california that also has a redistricting commission this was the first time in michigan's history we had ever gone through this Uh, so i was seeking good counsel to to help you know, help me figure out how this process was going to play out, what effect it was going to have. Um, you know, it's 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 really just a frivolous complaint launched against me by my opponent and those that support her to, you know, distract from the issues of, of you know, a, a failing economy, soaring gas prices and other challenges that we're seeing in the country that people really care about deeply.
1: The last question. Uh, we've seen a lot of doubt cast on the electoral process unfairly, most of it unsubstantiated candidates saying, hey, even after the election's over, saying, hey, I didn't actually lose because there are all these votes that were cast that don't count or all these other votes that didn't count. And uh, I, I wonder if you can commit to accepting the results of this election uh, one way or another absolutely. if you win or if you lose.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very comfortable with the people of this district making their decision, going to the voting booth, casting their vote and selecting their next member of Congress. That is absolutely something that we have to uh, respect. And I respect the people's decision. Um, I'm confident that, you know, given the, the contrast between myself and my opponent, that the people of this district are going to look for a new direction because we're heading down the wrong path right now. And I, I completely respect their decision. Um, and, you know, we're going to we're going to have this campaign. It's a spirited uh, we're down to just less than five weeks to go. We're getting yeah. into the narrow end close. of the funnel here. Yeah. And uh, and we know that there's a lot on the line. Uh, and both sides are, are aggressively campaigning. And, and, you know, that's that's a good thing for democracy to have these differing opinions and for people to be able to engage and in, in, uh, voice their opinion and, and, and you know, uh, speak with their vote. And so I, I absolutely respect that.
1: Okay. All right. Tom Barrett, uh, a state senator and aspiring congressman from the state of Michigan. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about your plans for the campaign. Thank and, you for uh, having me. Uh, Good luck with the rest of the campaign.
4: Thanks so much. I appreciate it.
1: We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to stay here in Michigan, but we're going to pivot to talk about the real struggle facing caregivers right now. A recent uh, Detroit News report really dug into those challenges and defines a breaking point, really, that caregivers are so close to here in the state of Michigan. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. On 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Michiganders are aging, and they are aging all over the state, but they are particularly getting older on average here in southeast Michigan. Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb counties are seeing our population age. Uh, in much more dramatic ways than in the rest of the state. And that older population really needs help. We've never fully had uh, self-sufficient kinds of support for the aging population. We demand care from those around us to help us through life. And while that may be scary for some, it's a perfectly normal transition. But that's not how it's treated. In this country, we do so little to help people who need help care and help those who are tasked with giving care caregivers get less money are often not unionized are not valued for the care that they're providing and in many cases end up working for free and so a lot of them can't afford the care that they are giving caregiving takes a toll and like everything else the work disproportionately falls on our most vulnerable women and particularly women of are tasked far more often with providing care than other members of our population. A new Detroit News report titled Caregivers in Michigan Are Reaching a Breaking Point shines a light on how these folks are struggling and trying to make it through in Detroit and the metro area. The piece delves into the inner lives of caregivers and by doing so asks, why do we have the system we do? Why don't we provide more care? for the people who are offering care to others like they do in so many other wealthy countries. To answer this, we've got the two reporters who wrote about caregiving in Michigan for the Detroit News with us. Haley Harding is a data reporter for the Detroit News. Haley, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Thank you so much.
1: And also with us is Sarah Rahal. She is a city reporter for the Detroit News. Sarah, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So Haley, I'll start with you. Uh, tell us how bad this is. Draw us uh, a picture of the caregiving situation here in Michigan. How much are they struggling? What is the scale of this crisis?
2: I mean, I think that if you talk to any caregiver who is really putting in the hours and putting in the work here, I think they, they can very easily tell you that it's 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 bad, okay, from what we know. Um, As you have already said, caregivers, particularly looking in Metro Detroit, the the survey we did looked at 500 caregivers um, in Metro Detroit and another 500 in Western New York. Um, And what we found is that, as you said, caregivers are disproportionately women. They're disproportionately people of color. A lot of these people are, you know, spending money they don't have. The average caregiver is spending more than $7,000 to give care. And a lot of them are just exhausted OK, they're, they're paying out of pocket for things. They are working full time jobs to keep their families afloat outside of giving care. It's it's an exhausting task. Hmm. And this has
1: been made a little worse uh, by some of the uh, some of the policy decisions that we've made over the last couple of years. Uh, Haley, talk about why this isn't getting better and how it's getting worse.
2: So a lot of the issues that we face in Michigan come from the fact that. um, Seeing is that people have a hard time accessing resources and when they do access resources, they might not necessarily be the best resources for that particular person. Like we have systems in place, um, like private groups that Sarah has written a lot about um, that can support people, but a lot of times like those groups can't like cover every every need. And so that what we found is that other states maybe have more comprehensive programs that are the result of investing a lot of money for a long time into taking care of it's not only our aging population. It's adults with disabilities. It's um, a variety of like, statistically speaking, we know that every person at some point or another is either going to be giving care or needing care. And other states, such as Washington and Minnesota, have done a great job of recognizing that and funding solutions for that, like that are taking care of caregivers, acknowledging the problems, creating support groups. Um, and some some of that stuff we're just not seeing here in Michigan.
1: Hmm. Uh, Sarah, as I said in the open, caregivers are disproportionately women, poorer people, and, of course, people of color. Uh, let's talk about what the day-to-day looks like for the people who are providing that care, what kinds of situations do they find themselves in, uh, do they work part-time or full-time and then take, a f- take care of family members the rest of the time? Uh, give us a sense of how this works.
5: Yeah, a lot of these people, I would say, uh, from the ones we talk to especially, are doing this full-time, if not part-time, uh, if they're able to have a job. It depends on the living situation that they're in. A lot of the people that they're caregiving for may need more assistance than they can even provide. Um, and that can take a huge toll on these people, especially if a financial toll, um, if they're not able to work, uh, they are possibly utilizing whatever social security benefits that, um, senior may have to take care of them. And in other cases that may not be enough, uh, especially if you're dealing with a, um, a senior who has dementia or Alzheimer's, um, that can take not only a financial toll to receive help, but an emotional toll on yourself. Uh, as many caregivers that are in home are related to that person. Um, you know, they didn't choose to have this happen to them, but also they did step up to the plate and are doing what they can to take care of them. Um, this means that a personal sacrifice in their own life to not be able to leave the house whenever they want to. They need a a babysitter almost to make sure that that person doesn't fall or get up and try to change themselves or so forth, or even start cooking. Uh, You know, potentially people who have uh, dementia don't remember what day it is. And um, it's, it can be very, uh, I'd say taxing on them, but also require a daily um, routine that they will establish once they get into the habit of caregiving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Haley Harding and Sarah Rahal. They're both uh, reporters at the Detroit News uh, responsible for a recent uh, report titled caregivers in Michigan are at a breaking point. Uh, We're talking about that breaking point, the stress And pressure that is on people who uh, provide care oftentimes for free, uh, sometimes to family members, uh, in in an environment where the population is aging and more people need care. And at the same time, of course, uh, our institutions uh, are not uh, providing the support for that aging population or for the people who provide The care. Uh, We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, Call and tell us if you are a caregiver or a care recipient here in Michigan. Uh, What kind of assistance uh, do you need? Tell us about what your pay is like. Are you paid at all? Uh, Do you have any supports to help elders or children in your family? And what would help you out? What kinds of policies would you support? Uh, that would give you more uh, to lean on, more to sort of buttress this care that you are providing. Especially when I hear from folks who are in the situation where they're providing care for an elderly uh, relative. Uh, More and more people, uh, I think, find themselves in that position and, and have few choices about what that care looks like or how to provide it. Uh, There isn't often money to be able to do it, so you end up doing it yourself. Give us a call and tell us what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, before we get to uh, to our listeners, uh, Haley, I, I want to talk about why we don't have supports for caregivers like you find in other wealthy countries. I, I mentioned in the open that, you know, if you go almost anywhere else in the Western world, this looks really different. What is it that's holding us back here?
2: Um, I think one of the biggest things is that uh in my conversations with leaders in other states, that is, that they've just noticed that if sometimes it seems that leaders try to, and this is not just Michigan, this is happening all over the country. Um, Minnesota and Washington state are at the top of like ARP's caregiving rankings, um, but we're seeing this all over the country that, that the states just aren't prepared to support caregivers, they are not support, prepared to support those receiving care. Okay, and the, res- the the problem here is that a lot of times states, I, I guess, are just hoping the problem goes away. Um, I, don't, I don't understand really the logic behind that because we know we have an aging population in the United States. We, we know that, like I said earlier, um, every person at some point in their life is likely to be in a position where they are either giving care or receiving care or perhaps some combination of both um, and not... Acknowledging the problem and not working towards solutions on the problem does not make the problem go away. Um, and we're seeing that time and time again, that states are choosing to focus in other areas, and there's a lot of important things to consider, obviously, when you are building a, a budget for a government or whatever, but I think it would be to the benefit of of everyone um, to acknowledge what caregivers do as well. Because as we know, caregivers are, and I can say this for Michigan, ARP has estimated that in Michigan caregivers do 15.1 billion dollars worth of work every year hmm. which is the result of 1.1 billion hours of caring okay and that's just between 1.3 million people okay caregivers who are unpaid and are doing this work are putting billions of dollars into our economy we know this and we know that if they stop doing that work these people have to go somewhere okay they, they would maybe maybe some of these loved ones would go to nursing homes or maybe a variety of other places but if we do not support this like effectively billion dollar I, I don't want to call it an industry it's not an industry but it, it's billions of dollars for our economy that people are doing for free if we don't support them they're going to burn out and they're not going to be able to do it forever and it's not fair or right for anyone
1: yeah yeah Okay, uh, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Haley Harding and Sarah Rahal. We'll also get to you on the phones and on Twitter, Alberta and Felicia in Detroit. You're going to be up first. Uh, There are other calls coming in already, but if you want to join, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
0: WDET is your place for open dialogue.
2: The music you love.
0: Real news and in-depth analysis.
5: And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit.
0: 101.9 WDET is your public radio station.
1: Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guests right now are Haley Harding and Sarah Rahal. They're reporters for the Detroit News who recently wrote a report called uh, Caregivers in Michigan are at a breaking point. That's what we're talking about is uh, caregiving as uh, the population here, especially in southeast Michigan, continues to age quite a bit, and people need uh, need more care than they used to. Who's providing that care? Are they being paid? Are they being paid fairly? Do they have the kinds of job protections and support that would make sense for people who are taking care of uh, our aging population? Uh, the answer in too many cases is uh, is no. Uh, lots of people just kind of handling this on their own. We want to hear from you about your experience with this issue. Are you somebody who is providing care or receiving care here in Michigan? Uh, Talk about the kind of assistance that you need. Uh, Talk about pay. Uh, Are you paid at all? Do you have any supports to help uh, the people that uh, that you're working with, uh, as always, the uh, the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we will include you that way. I want to start today with Felicia in Detroit. Felicia, welcome to the show.
6: Hi. Hi. I, I have a comment towards everything. I I was a caregiver from my son. My son is disabled, Uh, he's legally blind with cerebral palsy and a spastic quadriplegic. Mm. And here in the state of Michigan, I can't be his caregiver and be his legal guardian. And because of that fact, I can't live off of his $750 a month check, which meant I had to put him in a home So that someone else can care for him, Hmm. so that I can get out here and be able to, excuse me, so that I can be able to afford to live. And it's not fair. My son is 30 years old and he's in a home being taken care of by someone else. when I would love to be the one to take care of my own son. But because he's disabled and I don't have any assistance, there are no programs out here to help families like myself. I'm stuck with having to have him be cared for by others. Mm. It's not fair.
1: Mm. Felicia, first of all, I'm very sorry about that situation, and obviously we can all hear uh, how, how emotional this is for you and, and completely understand and and empathize. You said something at the beginning that I guess I don't know enough about. Um, You said that you're his legal guardian, which means you can't be his caregiver. Can you, can you talk just a little more about what that means?
6: Sure. So when someone is disabled and they can't, they can't make decisions on their own, they have to have a legal guardian. That's appointed by the court. Mm -hmm. So here in Michigan, because of the fact that I'm his mother, I and I can't be his caregiver and get paid to be his caregiver and be his legal guardian. I see. I can can be one or the other. I can't be both. When I'm the one that was taking care of him, I'm the one that, even though he's in a home right now, I still—if he was with me. I will
1: still do things that they don't even get paid for. Mm-hmm. Felicia, I, I'm really glad you called because I think the the situation you're describing is an important point in this conversation, but I'm also glad that you reached out to share your story with, with our listeners. And, and I, you know, I mean, obviously we, we wish you all the luck with the, uh, with that situation. It, it, it does sound like a, a, a very fraught situation and, and one that just doesn't have a lot of, a lot of answers. Uh, Haley Harning, I, I'll give you a chance to respond here to what Felicia's talking about and this rule that she's talking about, which in some ways makes some sense, but I think her case shows that uh, it, it puts some parents, at least, in a really, really precarious situation
2: yeah Felicia, I think it's very clear to just hear you talk about how much you love your son, and um, I really appreciate that you called in to talk about it um uh, this is this is something that we've heard from a lot of different caregivers is that the way that these rules interact with each other often do not serve to benefit the caregiver. they serve i don't i i maybe they benefit the taxpayer depending on who you're asking. But I, I know you're not alone in this, and I, I wish I could make this better for you right in this moment, but I, I know you're not alone in this. Not something that I can offer you right now is that we've heard from a lot of different caregivers who have had a similar situation um, where they can't, you know, take care of their wife necessarily, or they've had to make very similar decisions. And it, it's, it's not fair, and it, it takes a toll on people um, that I think is not maybe discussed a lot or not understood a lot. Um, because for a lot of people, there's a lot of shame that comes with that decision to have to put a loved one in someone else's care um, because the way that the rules play out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah, do you have anything to to add to this uh, this particular situation and again this this conundrum that Felicia finds herself in?
5: Um, Felicia, I just wish there were more resources for you. Um, you know, we've seen some some things that are available for older adults with disabilities, but not any that are for under the age of 65, even. Um, I wish you the best of luck. And if we do find a solution for you, we will reach out to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Felicia, really appreciate, again, the call and you sharing your story and wish you uh, all the luck with uh, with your son. Uh, okay, uh, next up is Martha in Livonia. Martha, welcome to the show. Um, hi. Hi.
3: Um, well, I, when I heard the caregiving, um, my caregiving right now, if I don't know if you hear him in the background here, is a <laughs> six-month-old grandson. Mm. And, um, you know, it's, we don't have child care for little guys, and I, I know this is at the other end of the age spectrum, but what I see it as, it's, it's looked at as women's work. It's that's drudgery work or, or you know, it's, and, and then when you said in, uh, how other countries do it, other countries also have child care. Um, provided for in in industrialized large countries. Yeah. So, um, I'm sorry I didn't hear the beginning of your program. It's okay, um, uh,
1: Martha. I, I, I would want to give you a chance to talk a little more about what that's like in your family and and how you ended up in in this role. Uh, what well, was a, yeah, go ahead? I'm a
3: retired childcare provider myself. I did did taught preschool for a number of years. I'm over 65. Um, it, there is no place for this, um, little five month old to go and her, you know, time that she could have off. Um, I stopped and had my children, my three children and, um, couldn't get back into the workforce after you do that. You know, even though it was teaching enough had changed, they felt I was too old. Um, so, uh, anyway, I ended up subbing and doing other things, but, um, then I didn't want that to happen to my daughter. You can't stop a per- career and then get back into the workforce. Hmm. So um, but I see this as, you know, and, and there's childcare for this child once he gets to walking age. So it's not an endless sight as I, as I know um, those that are dealing with aging parents and aging adults, I've dealt with that as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, but what I see it's it's, uh, it's those quiet people that um we're not quiet. It's like we just get up in the morning, and this is what we're going to do. Mm. And we do it because we love what we do. Um, I mean, and I, I, I get the cute little sneezes and the, and the coos and everything, but I know it's, 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 it's hard work caring for a, an aging adult as well. But it's that hard work thing. I don't know why. It's the left to those that um, have a big heart, and um, we need to know that we're all going to end up, at that age, at some point, yeah. and um, yeah, and you know, we've. My husband used to work out at the airport, and you know how many times they came home and he said, "You know, we're going to make a world class airport, and this is going to be world class." And we come home and we have third world caring for our aging adults and our and our youngest uh, citizens, and yeah. we need to all get together on this. Yeah. And um,
1: Martha, I really appreciate the call. And again, you're sharing your story in that situation. I mean, uh, th- this is at the other end of things, Haley, as Martha points out, but it, it falls squarely into the, the question of, of caregiving and how we manage it uh, in a, in a country where there's just not a lot of support.
2: Yeah. And I think Sarah is Um, the better one to speak to, it's called the sandwich generation or the sandwich caregivers when you are finding yourself caring for both older folks and, and children at the same time. And I I will let her speak to that, but I do want to say you made a great point in that it it is a lot of times women, um, the study that we wrote about or the, the survey that we wrote about, um, we found that almost, it's almost two to one, the number of female caregivers. And this is specifically looking at people caring for adults over 18, Um, So not quite the same as the situation you're in, but the numbers really um, stuck with me because we found almost two to one caregivers are female over male, Mm. which I think is really um, a statement, as you said, to when we think about who a caregiver is, who are we thinking about? And a lot of times it is is caregivers are women. And I I think that's that's very interesting. But I also I think Sarah can speak a lot more to the, the kinship care aspect of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Sarah.
5: You know, Martha, I'm so happy you called in because when we first started working on this story, it was almost like kinship caregivers ran to our door. If that makes sense, um, do you remember? Have you ever been familiarized with the term kinship caregiver? Has anyone called you that?
1: I think uh, is Martha. Oh. Martha, are you still there? Oh, I'm
5: sorry. Yeah, I'm here. I just don't, I don't remember the I don't recall
3: hearing kinship care.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the part of the problem is that a lot of uh, You know, people don't even recognize that kinship caregiving is a thing, um, that you don't have to just care give for older people, but you can also care give for people who um, you didn't birth. The people that, you know, just kind of ended up on your doorstep and, excuse me, you stepped up to take care of them. And people like yourself need support as well, because, like I said, you didn't ask for this. Um, You did step up to the plate and take the financial burden off of our foster care system and you should be compensated for it. So, excuse me, uh, you have a tremendous role that you're playing right now, and uh, there are other states that are doing things for kinship caregivers, and that's what we're looking into now for our our second project.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Martha, I really do appreciate you calling and and sharing your story with us. Uh, Let's go next to Alberta in Detroit. Alberta, welcome to the show.
0: Good morning, everyone, and thank you for this conversation. I want to speak, first of all, to Felicia and let her know that rules and laws can be changed, and she should make this an issue with her state representative and state senator Mm. to make those needed changes. Mm. And she can also request to go before a committee and share her story. So that's for Felicia. And then I also want to talk about the abundance of loneliness that I find in some of our senior buildings. And when I go there, there's so much information that they don't have. For instance, Wayne County Community College is free for all seniors in Wayne County. Mm. They can go and and take a plethora of courses, over 300 things they can take, and they don't even know about this, but we try to let them know. Also, seniors I find must stay active must find laughter, joy, and fun in life. At Mac Alive, the organization that we founded, my family, over on Fisher and Mac, every Thursday we open our doors with a speaker and healthy lunch for any senior that wants to come. We also will be going to the Apple Orchard. We go to the DIA, the Detroit Historical Museum, the, uh, the MAAH, um, and Move. It's... Uh, all about staying engaged staying active if you want to stay alive
1: yeah yeah Alberta I really appreciate uh, of course the call and and the information I mean the, the idea of the things that are available for seniors to do and and participate in that's really important and your your point to Felicia about the potential for policy change that's really important and, and sometimes we think uh, it's harder um, than than just getting people together to to advocate for that change, but but it really is uh, it really is possible uh, when people work together. Uh, let's go next to Adam in Southfield. Adam, what's on your mind?
7: Hey, good morning, Detroit. Hey. Um. So my mom has uh, been living with MS for around thirty years, and she's in a nursing home now. But while she was still living at home, uh, we found a program called the Medicaid Waiver Program, and it's It's for lower-income people, Um, and the whole concept behind it is if you qualify for Medicaid, you can get on this. It's usually a waiting list, uh, but once your name comes up, uh, Medicaid comes in, and they assess your needs, and, you know, normally it has all kinds of caps on what you can get from Medicaid for that kind of in-home health, but the waiver program, they waive all the caps, they assess what your needs are, and then they fund you so that you can then have a program that you can maintain in your home to take care of your loved ones hmm. uh, and keeping them at home. And for our family, it was a it was a game changer and a lifesaver. Um, it enabled my mom to live independently for probably 10 years longer than she would have been able to. And, you know, we found out about this program from a friend of my mom's through one of her support groups for MS. But the reality is when you're going through these kind of um caregiving when you're in these these positions where you need help in your home and things um everybody goes into it blind you don't know what your you know what are the resources that are out there and so you need those places like we found a lot of help from the area agency on aging um you know but those resources to help you navigate that stuff because there is help and stuff out there you know for felicia that might be a solution to help her uh with her son um you know, but mm-hmm. if you don't know, you don't
1: know. Right, so just right. Wanted to bring that
7: up and Adam on the radar.
1: Adam, uh, great information, uh, and I'm glad you called uh, to share it. That that is one of the, the the issues too is knowing what is available, where to access it, and and you know how to make things uh, easier where you where you can. I quickly want to go to Lee in Gross Point. She's got an important question. Lee, go ahead.
3: Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm hearing a lot about. Um policy change and what other states are doing and all this sounds wonderful. However, I'm not hearing what the policies are, I'm not hearing how they're funded. And we need to get down to brass tacks. My father died with Alzheimer. It was hideous. Thank goodness he did have enough income to be able to support a nursing home, which wasn't the best care for the money, by the way. And I, I really like Alberta's comments about community organizations. I really think we need more grassroots community organizations. I I am retired. I would willingly, you know, participate in such a thing, hmm. but they're not being put out there that I can that I that I've noticed. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful Way to
1: go. Yeah. Lee, Lee, I, I don't want to cut to you feel. off, but we're going to run out of yeah. time, and I want to give our guests a chance to, to answer. Haley Harding, we weren't talking about other states, necessarily. We were okay. talking about other countries, but maybe there are other states doing this. G- give us a sense of pay and cost and how uh, other people are able to do this.
2: Um, other states, from what we know, they have, in, again, some of the most successful states are the ones that have been able to... Um, expand Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, These are states that are using their federal dollars just perhaps in a different way than what we're seeing in Michigan. Um, And I know as, as you just said, that doesn't necessarily like address like the community side to this, but we do know that um, in these states that are most successful, AARP has told us that the states most successful in supporting caregivers are the ones that have allies um, in the in the state house and that's not necessarily a legislator that can be a community member who is just really passionate about the issue or a community group that's really passionate about the issue and says to their lawmakers hey we deserve more we want more um and that that's a normal thing to do is to say this is what we would like our government to look like this is what we would like our representation to look like mm-hmm. um and that's been successful in a lot of different places on yeah. making a change when right. it's needed
1: Yeah. Uh, Sarah, before we end, I want to give you a chance to respond to that as well.
2: So so
5: just to the funding, a lot of the funding does come from um, the Health and Human Services Department, which is a federal um, allocation. They often go to um, these agencies like PACE. If you haven't heard of PACE, it's a uh, elderly care daycare almost. They take, um, pick up, provide meals, but it all runs through Uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and they provide those resources and dollars through those specific uh, allocations. So finding more resources that are able to fund through agencies is probably an easier solution as it's already happening.
1: Okay. Uh, Haley Harding and Sarah Hall, reporters at the Detroit News, it was great to have both of you here to talk about uh, caregiving and aging. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you,
1: Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to continue talking about the upcoming elections here in Michigan. We're going to discuss the ballot proposals that Michiganders will be voting on for the midterms. Three of them on the ballot here in the state. We'll learn what they are, what both sides are on the arguments, and hear from you about how you're thinking about them. This is 101.9 FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again
7: tomorrow.